All right, well, they're back. The carbon taxers are back again. You know that line, they're back. It's one of those iconic lines from filmdom, you know, the little girl, innocent girl whispering at the opening of that horror drama, the 1986 movie, Poltergeist 2. Well, so at least for those of us who think that taxing people uh, who don't have much money is a bad idea, then I think that's the right analogy to talk about this return of the cabal that wants to tax carbon again, tax energy. And this time it's coming from a consortium of both uh, conservatives and, and uh, Democrats looking for a compromise, of course, on climate action, all right? I get why everybody's trying to find a way to compromise and I understand that. But the problem is we've got a new, a new nuance for this new carbon tax. It's, it's called the Border Carbon Adjustment Tariff. Okay, well, by any other name, it's still a carbon tax. The idea this time is that it's supposedly a more efficient and innovative way to reduce society's use of, of course, Hydrocarbons, you know, coal, oil, and gas, the stuff that runs all of society. Uh, 84% of all energy is provided for the world from hydrocarbons. And of the remaining uh, 16%, which is mostly hydro and wood and other biological materials and nuclear and some wind and solar, uh, all of those also depend on hydrocarbons to get built and operate. So uh, put differently, and accurately, the entire world, all of civilization is dependent on hydrocarbons. So you don't have to do some kind of expose of the devils and the details line to know that a carbon tax, whether it's a border adjustment kind or any other kind, that it would have two effects that are important to keep in mind because it's a politically popular idea with a lot of momentum. And the cut to the chase, the two effects are really easy to articulate um, a carbon tax, whether it's a border adjustment tariff or the kind of broad-based carbon tax that Congress toyed with several years ago, any carbon tax is inflationary. It's inflationary because it means you're taxing hydrocarbons that are used to produce and operate everything. So ipso facto, <laughs> it is inflationary. And can you imagine a worse time to be fueling inflation than now. Uh, as a relevant digression, I note that uh, Gallup issued last month um, an update to a very long standing tracking poll where they asked the same question uh, each year um, in exactly the same form because it allows you to track the shifting of public opinion. And this tracking poll is one that they call the most important problem tracking poll, where they ask an open-ended question, what do people think is the most important problem now in America? Um, you will be unsurprised to know, and you can find this by using the ma magic Dr. Google to find the poll, uh, the number one um, most important problem for Americans today by an overwhelming margin are economic problems and inflation. Uh, number two on the list was, and I quote, poor government or poor leadership. Um, 
pretty high up on the list was quote, the situation with Russia. Climate change did not make the top 10 of the spontaneous issues that people volunteer as the most important problem. Obviously with polling, you can put your finger on the scale and ask questions if people are worried about climate change or other issues um, by prompting a, an answer. But when you ask this question, which I think is an important one, which is sort of the open-ended question, what's, what do you think the most important problem is? Again, I'll repeat it, inflation. All right, well, let, let, let's dive into why um, a carbon tax or a border adjustment carbon tariff, and tariff is another word for tax, would be a really bad idea. Uh, first is that the systemic benefits of low-cost energy uh, are really ignored by and large when energy is cheap. And now it's getting a little more expensive, but in historic terms, it's actually still relatively cheap. Things would get, and not to be uh, pessimistic as the last optimist, things would get a lot worse yet. And because energy is, again, used for everything that's fabricated or grown, operated or moved, keeping track of and encouraging policies that lead to lower cost energy in the future rather than higher cost, arguably should be one of the most important single tasks of governance. And the reason that we uh, have a risk of fueling inflation by adding another tax, especially a carbon tax, is maybe best illustrated by just thinking in terms of the macroeconomic numbers. And I can, I, I can say the obvious and point to a lot of specific examples of where and how we use fuel, how much energy it takes to make a hamburger, how much energy it takes to make a house, never mind run a house, how much energy it takes to fabricate smartphones and cars. I mean, these are all energy, energy intensive activities because everything requires energy to make. But at the macroeconomic level, broadly speaking, most things, most services, most products, if you looked at the constellation of things that are used to make the product or service, energy typically accounts for 10% or less of a cost of providing the product or service up until energy gets expensive. But roughly speaking, uh, until very recently, the energy inputs spending on energy is about 10% of the cost to provide a product or a service. So let's just state the obvious. If I double the cost of energy, which is roughly where we are right now, you increase the cost of the product or service by about 10 percentage points. Well, 10 percentage points is inflationary. And in the inflationary world, in the world that we all live in and in, in, in the, where we all buy products and services, uh, no one likes when the cost of the product or service is, is increased by a few percentage points, much less 10. But that's, that's the world we're in now. And a lot of it, in fact, a significant share of it, in many cases, almost all of it is being driven by core energy inflation. Even the inflation on wheat, which is partly driven by the uh, Ukraine crisis, the fact that Russia and Ukraine are very big producers and exporters of wheat, that has had uh, an impact on wheat prices. But far more than half of the increase in the cost of wheat that's occurred in the last six months to a year has come from higher natural gas prices. And that's because natural gas is what you use to make nitrogen fertilizer and fertilizers are what you need in modern economies to grow wheat at levels that we need for society. And fertilizer is very energy intensive. If you double the cost or triple the cost of natural gas, you make fertilizer more expensive and you increase the cost of wheat 
by the kinds of miles we've seen, so 20 to 50%, even, even on track to doubling the cost of wheat. Oh, oh, let, me, let me give you another example. And I'm doing this because I really want to uh, drive home the centrality of the importance of cheap energy for society. If you want to look at the energy inflation arithmetic at the really broad macroeconomic level, the world, if you look at global GDP and global spending, in other words, if we look at the size of all the world's economies collectively, and to look at it within those economies, the share of consumer and business spending that is directed towards buying energy, purchasing energy, whether it's a homeowner or a business. So not, not in other words, not the price of oil, but the, the share of the world's economy at the point of use, customers uh, and homeowners, the share of the world's economy that is consumed by buying energy or energy services, about 10%. And which is a good thing because for most of human history, the a share of a, an economy that's been associated with acquiring food and fuel has been somewhere between 50 and 80%. So you wanna have lots of, of the economy available for doing other things like healthcare, environmental protection, education, entertainment, rather than being consumed by uh, spending on energy. So this brings me to sort of thinking about our current episode of energy inflation. And we're clearly in an energy inflationary period, obviously. Look at the price of gasoline, the price of diesel fuel recently. But the energy inflation we have now is, uh, you could to use the expression, the perfect storm expression, which is a pretty accurate uh, phenomenology, not just in storms, but in, in terms of the characteristics of um, crises, in fact, even the characteristics of accidents, the, the worst things tend to happen when there's sort of an intersection of three, three separate related forces that have different reasons to happen. So energy inflation right now has been triggered in, this, in the sort of the perfect storm analogy because of the intersection of three forces that have occurred contemporaneously. The, the first is the policies, government policies in, the, in Europe and the United States have been for quite a few years now hostile to expanding conventional energy production. Okay, if you restrict the ability to expand supply and demand goes up as it has for energy, for hydrocarbons, you get a price increase. That's classic economics 101. So that's the first factor that we've, we have policies that have been in place in Europe and the United States that have not, not only not encouraged oil and gas production, but have been essentially hostile to it. And as the world's economies have grown, especially in, in a recovering period, you get a, a constriction on supply. Supply can't expand as fast as demand. You get higher prices. The second thing, of course, is the government-induced government lockdowns. And we know why the lockdowns happened. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of whether the lockdowns were good, bad, or indifferent from a disease prevention perspective. That's a whole separate discussion. But from a viewpoint of the economy, uh, lockdowns were profoundly destructive to supply chains, as we've all discovered, and in particular to energy supply chains. So these massive systemic lockdowns across the uh, Western world economies and much of Asia uh, were enormously destructive to the operations of supply chains in general, but in particular to energy supply chains. So when demand comes back, the supply chains have been, have been uh, damaged. They don't respond as easily or quickly. Again, inflationary. And then the third feature in the intersection of three forces in the perfect storm analogy, obviously was the invasion of Ukraine 
which uh, put at risk uh, one of the biggest suppliers of oil and gas in the world, which is Russia. Um, to repeat it for those who've not heard earlier podcasts or who don't know the facts, I mean, Russia is one of, if not the largest exporter of oil uh, to the world. It's one of the biggest exporters of natural gas. The United States is now the biggest exporter, by the way. But in the triumvirate of the three big players globally in supplying oil and gas to the world markets, it's uh, United States. Saudi Arabia and Russia. So the threat of having more uh, interruption to supply from either imposed sanctions or implicit sanctions on Russian exports is also inflationary. So we have those three forces going on. And to repeat, we now have simultaneously politicians talking about adding another feature to what would be inflationary, which is taxing the primary sources of energy that keeps the world operating, which is again, hydrocarbons. And then to make matters worse, to deal with the Russia crisis and to deal with the desire that Europe has and the United States to sanction uh, Russian oil and gas exports, to take away the revenues from Putin that he's uh, enjoying that uh, from higher prices in an inflationary period. Of course, the world would like to you know, enforce it by, the, by either fiat or by uh, shaming, if you like, the purchasing of Russian oil and gas. And to do that, the International Energy Agency, the president of the European Union, and our president, President Biden, have uh, said the solution we have to that is to double down on green energy, double down on windmills and solar panels and uh, batteries. I've talked about that before. This is just, uh, just I'll state this is a fact, it's the subject for an uh, another podcast again, uh, that will not eliminate the consumption of oil and gas, nor can it in any meaningful time frames significantly reduce the amount of oil gas being purchased from Russia. First, it's because there are very long cycle uh, construction programs to build sufficient quantities of windmills and solar arrays and electric cars. And believe me, the world's been trying very, very hard, spending uh, trillions of dollars to accelerate the construction of wind, solar, and electric vehicles, and it's had nearly no impact. Uh, well, I say nearly no, it obviously has some impact, but it's had nearly no impact of any significance on global consumption of oil and gas, or coal for that matter. Coal use is up right now. Oil and gas use have kept increasing as we have pumped subsidies at the so-called green energy sources. But the inflationary part of pumping yet more money, the double down strategy on green energy to replace Russian oil and gas, is that the green energy is more expensive inherently, so that's inflationary. And the green energy requires using uh, lots of minerals, uh, as I've talked about earlier and written about many times. Uh, and again, for those who don't know this, for a calibration, you need about a thousand percent greater production, mining production or refining of minerals like copper, aluminum, cobalt, lithium, nickel, uh, to produce the same unit of energy with wind, solar, and batteries as you would have otherwise produced by simply using oil or gas or coal for that matter. So you have this incredible increase in mineral demands that will result in higher mineral prices and already have. So that means that you end up with yet another inflationary push by having governments decide that the way to uh, get the dual benefit of reducing oil and gas use from Russia and uh, pursuing the you know, climate visions of eliminating hydrocarbons in general. 
again, it's inflationary, whether or not it should be done or not done in the longer term. Let's leave that again for another day. The fact is doubling down on it today is yet another form of inflation. So, you know, if we're, we're going to add this up. We've gone past the perfect storm of, you know, three features. We've got a sort of a, a perfect storm times two of multiple features of government policies that are profoundly inflationary. None of this is good for the economy. None of this is good politically. Frankly, I think this is going to be a, um, a tectonic event politically where inflation is going. And the policies that both the EU and the United States are pursuing uh, will fuel inflation. Meanwhile, let's come back to the motivation for the carbon tax. The advocates of a carbon tax or border adjustment carbon tariff, which is a euphemistic and elliptical way of calling a carbon tax a carbon tax. Look, to be fair, what what, what they want to, what they're asserting they're going to do is tax the hydrocarbon components of imports. That's the border adjustment carbon tariff idea. Is that if you buy a product from China, which has a which has an electric grid that's two thirds coal fired, or you buy a product from another country that uh, uses lots of hydrocarbons to make the product, what you would do is tax the product based on its quote carbon content in making it or delivering it to you. It's still a carbon tax because. You're, and you're going to increase the cost of goods. You're going to increase the co cost of services. But the theory on this would be they would do two things. If we had the border adjustment carbon tariff, tariff, it would increase the costs of things made with hydrocarbons. Therefore, it would reduce the consumption and production of hydrocarbons, which is, quote, good for climate change goals. And the uh, proponents claim that because it would raise the cost of imported goods made in carbon intensive countries, that would provide a stimulus for innovation in America where we would produce those products anyway. All right, so I got to unbundle those two things. Uh, we got to talk about whether or not it's a stimulus to get more American production. So reshoring American industries by taxing other people's stuff, which is what the idea is, and whether or not by making hydrocarbon more expensive, it would significantly reduce their consumption. Because, you know, basic economics, obviously, if you make something expensive enough, people use less of it. I mean, this is not complicated. The thing you would want to know to deal with these two issues in, in, in sequence, first with, would it reduce consumption of hydrocarbons? And the second is, would it stimulate innovation in America and more reshoring of American industries? Let's deal with the first one first. Would it reduce the consumption of oil, gas, and coal in the world if we had a border adjustment carbon tariff, a carbon tax. Well, yes, if you made the tax high enough, it would, but we actually know how high the tax would have to be to meaningfully and measurably reduce the consumption of hydrocarbons. We know how high the tax would have to be because markets have done the experiment for us. Uh, when the world uh, was leading up to the 2018 recession and the decade leading up that recession, the demand for oil increased in the 10 years leading up to the recession. The demand for oil increased even as the price of oil rose 200%. So think about that. The price of oil rose over that decade by 200%. The consumption of oil increased during a period in which the price of oil went up 200%. The consumption of oil did go down finally, when the recession happened, when the great recession of 2008 hit. In other words, when we hammered the economy for other reasons. When the economy shrunk, oil demand went down, but it didn't go down because the price of oil went up 200%. Well, let's put that in inverse terms. If you wanted to meaningfully cut the consumption of oil, we know from this 
call it grand experiment. And it's not the only time in history we have track record of oil prices going up and demand going up simultaneously. What we know is we'd have to tax oil or hydrocarbons enough that it would be higher than a 200% increase in the cost of oil to meaningfully measure and see a decrease in demand or cause a recession. And that reduces demand for hydrocarbons. But since most politicians don't uh, say they want to cause recessions, and what they are saying with the border adjustment carbon tariff, aka carbon tax, is to reduce hydrocarbon use by providing the incentive to move away from it because it's more expensive. Let's be honest about how much more expensive it would have to be. It would have to be a lot more expensive. So much more expensive that no politician, no policymaker anywhere is proposing taxes that high which means that the kind of taxes they're pr proposing, the kind of levels of increase in, in price of hydrocarbon goods would be inflationary, but not enough, because it would just be a little bit, say 10% or 20%, enough to be inflationary, frankly, but not enough to have any measurable impact on hydrocarbon use. Of course, once you implement a new tax, this would be a new tax, let's be clear. There are no energy taxes or hydrocarbon taxes right now, but if we were to implement one, and once you, put it in place on the books, we, we all know what happens with any new tax in the history of taxes in governance is that they governments can't resist ratcheting them up over the passage of time. So it's a double bad idea. Not only implement the carbon tax as a new form of tax because it opens up a door to yet another way to have policymakers find new, new sources of quote revenue, but it would not have the effect claimed, which is that the tax would create a disincentive for using hydrocarbons. To the extent that it has a disincentive, it would be microscopic, not measurable. And then the other claim is, oh, look, if we make the cost of goods coming to America from China, and this is the target here, let's be candid what people are targeting, because China is a very coal intensive economy. Um, and China uses lots of coal, cheap coal, to make cheaper goods to ship to us. What these policy carbon taxes wanna do is make those goods more expensive. But because they're using coal in China to make those goods, to make them inexpensively for us. So let's make them more expensive. And that will cause America's industries to uh, build things here on a presumably lower hydrocarbon grid. All right, <clears throat> again, let's just set aside the fact that this is a bizarre way to stimulate reshoring by making everything more expensive for consumers. If you want to reshore manufacturing in America, you would reduce the taxes and the regulatory burdens on American manufacturers, so they'd have an incentive that was uh, to, to do more business and build more factories in America, rather than providing the uh, stick of beating consumers with higher prices and hoping that manufacturers will choose to put up with high cost taxes and high regulations and build here anyway. It's, a, it's an extraordinary elliptical argument. And of course, the proponents of the carbon tax are fully aware that it's a regressive tax. It impacts the middle class and poor the most. So their proposal is, oh, well, then we'll round trip some of the money. We'll, we'll take uh, some of the revenues from the, the border adjustment tariff, the, the carbon tax, and give it back as rebates to the lower income uh, parts of the American economy because they would be uh, you know, disadvantaged. Oh, this is really... Bizarre. So set, again, set aside whether or not we have so much faith in a uh, profoundly efficient government system that will round trip money like that. Rather than just leave it in people's pockets, we're going to now round trip it through the government coffers. 
the idea that we can round trip the money and still have lots of money left over to do other things like provide incentives to build up businesses in America is just profoundly naive. A carbon tax would be meaningful, would be damaging to everybody. Everybody would have to get the money round trip to them. So it would be no, be no, it's just, it's just strange. So, and you can, you can hear the frustration in my voice as I uh, revisit this issue, having uh, debated, debated the topic for years. Uh, in fact, this carbon tax idea began as the BTU tax. And I think it was 1993 and Clinton Gore um, White House, and they proposed to tax a barrel of oil. Uh, so all hydrocarbons, and it's for the same reason, because of climate change. But the tax proposed then was like a buck a barrel equivalent or less. And that, by the way, uh, was roundly defeated, I uh, think unanimously uh, in the US Senate, in other words, unanimously, and by a bipartisan way, no one wanted to increase the cost of energy at that time. But now they do. A lot of political revolutions have been uh, stimulated through governments deliberately increasing the costs of, of core products and services for the, for the citizenry. In any case, back to the, uh, the issue at hand. So we have the last point that's being made is that somehow if we make, uh, if government chooses to make hydrocarbon related things more expensive, this will somehow stimulate innovation to find new technologies that will be less expensive uh, because you know, you're forced to, to innovate by virtue of the higher taxes. I mean, there's certainly some truth to the to the claim that uh, higher costs do stimulate markets to respond and innovators to respond. I mean, uh, there's you know you do workarounds. I think the first response is uh, innovation in in, uh, in in the kleptocracy or innovation in the accounting fields or innovation in uh, circumvention of the letter of the law by finding ways to avoid taxes. That's the first innovation that happens. But the basic idea that technology innovation is stimulated by taxation is just fundamentally, philosophically, and practically deeply flawed and almost doesn't bear five more seconds of debate. It's just a silly idea. That's not where innovation comes from. Profound and foundational innovations, in fact, don't come from price stimulus. And most of them, in fact, come from, as I've talked about in earlier podcasts, in a way, sort of serendipity or motivations to uh, compete with somebody else who has something that isn't expensive, but that is, let's say, reasonably priced, but you found a cheaper way to do the same thing, or you invent things that have never existed before. To use the iconic example, the car wasn't invented to circumvent the escalating costs of a horse and buggy. The car was not invented by people in the horse and buggy business. And the airplane was not invented by people in the um, train business to circumvent the fact that trains were slow and on a relative basis, a much more expensive way to get people uh, long distances quickly and efficiently. So these these kinds of simplistic um, rationalizations for taxation are just that, simplistic and deeply flawed. So let me um, wrap this up um, in terms of thinking about where we're gonna go and what, what will happen. I think what's gonna happen is, um, I hope the carbon tax will die an ignominious death again. If it does get passed, it will have no impact on hydrocarbon use, it will create new vectors for kleptocrats and lobbyists, obviously, because it's the first thing that new forms of taxation and 
their associated uh, bureaucracies looking for ways to hand money out to the favored winners and losers that are going to do things that the government deems ought, ought to be done in energy domains. The single most important thing, I'll come back to where I began, that governments can do in energy domains is to ensure that energy is inexpensive and reliable. Then it's important, of course, to make sure we, we, we provide energy in a safe and environmentally uh, sound way. That's a, that's a given, but the primacy is inexpensive and reliable. And paths will take us down increasing costs and decreasing reliability, which is exactly what punitive taxation does and punitive regulations and doubling down on green. I'll say again, the doubling down on green is inflationary and it's inflationary on energy prices. It's inflationary on non-energy goods because it inflates the cost of the minerals needed to build the mineral intensive green machines, which makes everything else expensive from appliances and housing to computers and all manners of other everyday products and services because they all use the same minerals. So we have a, a, a circular argument that's underway that somehow we can break that ironclad loop of minerals being needed to produce things. You'll need the minerals to be cheap to make sure the costs of goods are kept low, that they're not dominated by the cost of the minerals and they're not dominated by the cost of energy. So now what we're gonna do is increase the demand for minerals, which inflates their costs and artificially increase the cost of energy used to extract the minerals, which increase their costs. You get my point. It's a, it's a profoundly destructive inflationary loop. And in the end, what we'll get, I think, and I hope this is what will happen, as I, and as I uh, said in an earlier podcasts and much of what I've written recently, I think that the inflation period we're in now, some have called it an inflationary super cycle, is going to get probably get worse if, unless we have a great recession again or a depression. It's going to be very hard to slow it down. Uh, the government policies to raise interest rates won't slow down the inflationary pressures the other policies are creating and have created by virtue of making the supply chains that keep our economy running, the energy supply chains, making those supply chains more fragile and more difficult to expand and build in order to increase production and reduce prices. All those forces are relatively uh, sticky in the sense that they're not going to be fixed quickly or easily. So we're, in a, we're going to be in a period, I think, of... Um, uncomfortable inflation, politically incendiary inflation. And policies that make it worse, I think will be politically damaging to those who choose to make it worse. Maybe with a little luck on the other side of the, uh, of the equation, both parties, and I, there, there are green shoots on this, and I mean that in the old fashioned sense of the word, uh, that both political constituencies are recognizing the damage that's being caused to economies by policies that inflate the cost of minerals and energy. And certainly in Europe, we've already had a recognition of the need to increase production of oil and gas, reduce the impediments to building more pipes, import terminals for Europe so they can get American gas. Whether or not America's policymakers on both sides of the aisle decide that they should similarly embrace those kinds of policies, whether that happens or not, it becomes a bipartisan move. And it needs to be a bipartisan move, by the way. I don't mean... 100% hug and get along. I mean, it needs to be a bipartisan understanding that these are foundational uh, to the economic health of not just our economy and the European economy, but the world's economies. We need to have a sensible and orderly adoption 
uh, new classes of technologies that produce hydrocarbon use as well. That's a perfectly reasonable policy, but sensible and orderly market adoption. Unfortunately, for those who want to move fast, sensible and orderly means slow. Uh, if we want to reduce hydrocarbon use, we would also have policies that promote the increased adoption of more efficient hydrocarbon using machines or put differently. It would make sense not just to promote electric vehicles to state the obvious example, but also promote more efficient internal combustion engines, not mandate them, uh, but promote them, pro provide the kinds of uh, incentives for if, if you want to give money to people to buy a battery powered car, I guess, okay, go ahead. It's hard to fight that fight right now, but one would imagine in a rational world facing the inflationary pressures we're facing now, you'd give an equal amount of money or heck, let's do a compromise, half as much money to consumers who chose to buy a internal combustion engine that provided as much reduction oil use as the battery one did. And by the way, um, a more efficient internal combustion engine can overall, from a global perspective, reduce oil use as much or more than promoting electric vehicles and at a lower cost because the technologies already exist. The same would be true for power plants. The same would be true for nuclear power. Uh, we should be promoting and incentivizing next generation nuclear power plants because that would reduce natural gas demand and pressures on natural gas and also reduce coal demand in many parts of the world. But there too, we're facing incendiary political battles, if you like, over the, the camp who still hates nuclear power. So we have in some a sort of a constellation of pressures now that while not unprecedented are rare in history, the inflationary pressures, the growth of the world wants to have to see a, a greater well-being for people who have less than those that are most comfortable in the United States and Europe, all those pressures come together at a time when we've had this trigger, this catalyst of realizing just how important oil and gas are, the catalyst being Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine. That might, and I'll say this as my sort of closing observation, that 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 might catalyze finally the Great Reset and not just kill the carbon tax, which we should definitely kill, but also a restoration of a balanced energy policy, surge, support more electric vehicles and wind turbines and solar arrays, but also support more efficient production of oil gas and more efficient and clean uh, use of coal in parts of the world where they have no other choice because they don't have the infrastructures or the economy to support the alternatives. That would be a rational balancing to do to help the world and help the world's um, citizens who don't have the benefits that so many uh, of the people in the wealthiest parts of the world already have. This would be the rational thing to do. This would be the moral thing to do. But again, the catalyst may in fact be uh, the, the this now unbelievably um, dramatic rush to figuring out how to eliminate the purchase of Russian gas and oil. That could be the silver lining in energy policy. A very difficult lesson to have had to learn that way, but that might be the silver lining. So that that's a, that's the best piece of optimism I can add in the in the framing of my my optimism. And let's uh, re we'll revisit I think the topic of um, what technologies can be incentivized in a in a future podcast. But for now, um, if you're finding these podcasts useful and interesting, please. Uh, Rate them in the 
ratings domains that and that where you access podcasts it always helps and if you have questions uh, or feedback please um, send send them to me or put them in the uh, comment boxes because i'm happy to as i've done already uh, take on some of the questions that people have and address them more directly and in fact i'll plan another in a couple of podcasts from now two or three from now uh, a revisit of some of the newer questions that are coming in from some of my comments and observations and articles And with that, until next time, this is Mark Mills for The Last Optimist, signing off.